What's happening in the canine industry? For all the latest news, views and expert opinions, stay right here for the canine paradigm. You'll hear from industry leaders, experts, doyens of the industry, learned colleagues, movers and shakers, and the odd Randy guest. Get the latest insights and expert advice from both here and abroad from the people in the know. Now, here are your hosts, Glenn Cook and Pat Stewart. And I'm Lofty Fulton, and I'm out of here. Hey, Pat, it's 2020. Yeah. It's a new year. Yeah. Do you reckon if we call Jason Furman, his attitude might have improved? Only one way to find out. Should we call him? Yeah. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Hello, Buffhead. Hey, Cockhead, what are you doing? <laughs> you woke me up, you bastard. Did, we're recording another ad and we thought we'd call you. Just to... <laughs> yeah, you fucking woke me up. You're lucky, all right? Answered it. <laughs> oh, is that one of the reasons you don't like people calling you? Because you work nights? Yeah, that's like I, I, I try to stay awake until fucking midday, but no, people ring me at like three in the afternoon. Oh. Like as if they have lives. Hey, Jace, got any cool stuff for sale? Through com. Yeah, if uh, you get on the website and if you're a balanced trainer, certified balanced trainer, that's NDTF or Bart Bell and Gold School, right. um, you can get up to $40 off HS products. I see. Is that because you're an ethical good guy and you're trying to outprice people just buying them without knowing what they're doing with them? Pretty much. There are other reasons, but mostly it's that. I'm a, I am an asshole as well. But I <laughs> so if people wanted all this kind of dog training equipment... Uh, equipment. Yeah, equipment. Is that a chipmunk with that has equipment on? Yeah. Okay. Uh, is, is that my new name, Pat? Yeah, you're the, you're the equipment. <laughs> the equipment. Yeah. Where do they go to check out that? Best bet is einzweck.com. www.einzweck.com. All right. Happy New Year, Buffhead. Glenn, are you eating dog food? I'm not eating dog food. Okay. But people thought I was last time. This is why we're redoing this ad because last time we were doing it, we had people ringing up saying, I'm very confused. It sounds like you're eating dog food. What dog food did people think you were eating? They thought I was eating Bright Spites. Why would people think you were eating it? Well, because on our ad last time, I made a little rustle and you said, Glenn, what are you doing? (laughs) And I said, I'm enjoying some Bright Spites. Isn't it that... The Bright Spites are so healthy and nutritious for a dog that they're amazing to use in training because dogs love the flavor of them. They're actually very good for the dog. Hmm. And they're so delicious that you thought maybe you'd have a little nibble? Well, you could because it's been so well made. As you said, as you pointed out, Kylie Bright uses all the best products that you could possibly think of in her dog treats Mm -hmm. that you could possibly eat them. But... They're not recommended for human consumption, but they are great for your dog. Okay. Where would I get these? Dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. Did you say dogsquadcanineservices.com.au? I did, sir. Would I spell that canine or spell it out? Canine as in C-A-N-I-N-E, not K-9. Okay. So spell it out, dogsquadcanineservices.com.au. Get yourself some Bright's Bites. Use them to train your dog. Don't have a nibble yourself unless you really want to. Exactly. Welcome back to the Canine Paradigm. I'm your host, Pat Stewart. I'm joined in studio by my co-host, Glenn Cook. And joining us all the way from Missouri is Sarah Bruski with the coolest name I've ever heard in my life. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for coming on. So tell us what you just told me about your last name when I said, are we sure that we pronounce this Bruski? (laughs) Yeah, it's pronounced just like you want to hear it, like you want to go out and have a Bruski. And I may have married my husband because of his last name. It's a fantastic (laughs) last name. Good choice. Yeah, we approve in Australia. Hey, Sarah, thanks for making the time to come on. We really appreciate it. We've had an overwhelming a number of people say that we they want to hear you as a guest. They want to get we, to get you on the show. And so here you are. We finally made it happen. We've been talking about this since, what was that, November last year? We've been back and forth trying to get a time. Yeah, I was in Brisbane in November of last year. I try to go out there at least once a year. And that's when we first started talking. And unfortunately, I couldn't get to Sydney to talk to you guys in person at that point. Mm -hmm. But luckily enough, I will be coming back to Australia um, in November again this year. And I will be stopping in Sydney this time. Okay, perfect. Well, we'll need to do it again in, in person then. Who did you come out for in Australia? 
who hosted you? Originally, it was for the Canine Disc Australia Club that would bring me out, and it was for a Frisbee, but it's kind of morphed since then. Maria Theory is the one that brings me out now, and she does primarily agility and a little bit of disc and some other things in there. Right. Okay. Cool. Hey, so as you know, we're, we're kind of big on origin stories here, and so I uh, would love to talk about how is it that you're in a point where people are bringing you out to hear what you have to say about disc and agility and other things, but where did it all start? Let's go right back to the start, and how did you become a dog trainer? How did you get to that point? Yeah. First off, I just want to say I'm shocked that people still want to hear what I have to say. Um, <laughs> it, it blows my mind every single day that I get messages from people, that people are signing up for classes and that you guys are calling me for a podcast. Like this is the most amazing thing ever. And so, um, yeah, so thank you for that. Everybody out there, that's the biggest compliment ever. Awesome. But it started as a childhood dream. Really? I was 11 years old when I begged my parents to let me buy a border collie. So of course they're like, save up all your money and do all the chores, go out and buy a border collie from the newspaper, of course, because that's <laughs> how we did it back then yeah. um, when we didn't know any better. And the reason why I wanted a border collie was because I had watched the Perina Incredible Dog Challenge on TV. So they played Frisbee with their dogs. They did agility. They did all these really, really cool things. I'm like, I want a dog that can do that. And it actually, it blew my mind that anybody else would want any other kind of dog than a border collie because they're just like the perfect dog, in my opinion. Not mm -hmm. anymore, but back when I was a kid, obviously, because I have coolies and a whole bunch of other dogs now. So I got my border collie. I trained him in agility in my backyard. My dad got some construction drainage pipes and PVC weave poles, and we made everything we could. And I trained him in agility in my backyard with some cookies. And it was really, really great until I went to my first agility trial and realized I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> so that was very interesting. Luckily, um, a quick study, I learned a lot. I watched a lot. I asked a lot of questions and we were able to trial here and there. But unfortunately, he had to retire early from agility due to a shoulder injury. Right. But that's OK. He did all sorts of really cool tricks. He's the one who got me into clicker training. And I learned all about Karen Pryor and everything else back then. But I was still kind of a balanced trainer. So I definitely used corrections. I definitely used pinch collars, that sort of thing. And so it's just kind of evolved since then. Mm hmm. When my husband and I moved moved in together, we got Great Danes. And of course, my favorite question he asked me was, Great Danes don't drool a lot, do they? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, no, they don't. It's fine. You'll love them. And luckily, he did love them. But that was definitely the path I took to become the crazy dog lady I am today. <laughs> right. So I had um, one Great Dane. He was human aggressive. And he's the one that really turned me into the positive reinforcement trainer I am today. Because everybody told me, well, you know, you have to give him a come to Jesus moment. You have to control him. You have to be the alpha and all these things. And I, I physically couldn't do it. I'm not a very big person and he's a very big dog. And so I picked up uh, Leslie McDivitt's Control Unleashed, which is an amazing book. And that's kind of what convinced me to go positive reinforcement. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it all spiraled out of control since then. What did you do with the Danes? Did you ever compete in anything with them? Because I know you're a pretty staunch competitor, right? And you're in a lot of different things. Did you show them in anything? Yeah, so I had two Great Danes. One of them was definitely a couch potato, but I tried to convince him to do agility. He did it because I asked him to, but he was definitely not thrilled about it. Uh -huh. And then my other Great Dane, I got to do confirmation, but he was actually the human aggressive one. So yeah. you can just imagine how that went. <laughs> so he retired early from the ring from that. And then I did try to compete in agility with him, um, got him in the ring just once, and it went really, really badly. And then unfortunately, he had an accident where he broke his leg in multiple spots wow. and dislocated it in such a way where he would have had to amputate it. And because he's a Great Dane, it was a front leg and he had behavioral problems and a few other issues. Uh, the recommendation from several vets was to um, euthanize him at that point. Yeah, so right. unfortunately, we didn't get to do a whole lot, but he was a lot of fun to work with. And he definitely had talent for agility. Did you ever resolve his aggression? Unfortunately, no. I had a pretty good handle on it by the time, but he passed away when he was just three years old. Right. And so when I had started working on it using behavioral adjustment therapy and, and all the all the techniques I had learned, because, of course, he was the dog I'm learning this stuff on. So it took a lot more time than it probably should have. We had a good headway. I could definitely take him into public and he was safe. He wasn't ever going to be a dog that somebody could uh, come up and approach. But I was learning that about him and learning how to protect him and make him feel safe um, so that he didn't feel like he had to react. Mm. And so I would say that I got him to a pretty good point, but not to a point where I was I would say it was resolved. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's the case with a lot of people with aggressive dogs is they really need to learn a management system around the dog because, you know, even though you can improve the dog out of sight and the dog can be so much more than what it was, the matter of fact is, is that you can never entirely trust that dog ever again. Absolutely. It just, it's one of those things where, and I, I don't do a lot of behavioral stuff. So you got to take all everything I say with a grain of salt on this is definitely not my specialty. There's so many more people out there that know a lot more than I do about behavioral adjustment therapy and, and all those things that you do with, with dogs that are reactive. Mm. But yeah, I have found having the variety of dogs I have now and the fosters I've had that is, it's really just a matter of getting that dog to feel safe and, and really showing him that you have control in the situation and to always look to you for that guidance. And that was a huge lesson that that dog taught me. Yeah. I think one of the things with Danes, especially not to, we've just, we'll lose the Dane audience, <laughs> but there's some, there's some genetic nerve issues there. Right. And, and I think a, a big part of what I am teaching to people at the moment is about what I call like a genetic bandwidth of capability. Like in that, so as trainers, it's our job to get to the, the dog to the highest point that we can within that bandwidth of capability. But the honest truth is some dogs, the absolute best version of that dog is not even going to be half as good as another dog's worst day, you know, like, and, mm. and I think we, sometimes when we do behavioral uh, modification stuff, you go to people's homes and you say, yeah, yeah, we can improve this out of sight. And we, we probably can, but we, you know, maybe don't always give them the true picture of like, this is never going to be not there, you know, like, with the, and it depends, of course, it could be a learned behavior in the dogs, you know, just displaying it, blah, blah. There's lots of things that could go that way. But I think it's that acceptance that, you know, every dog is an individual and, and he's going to, his genetics and early life experience before we even got him is going to play a huge role in his life for the entirety of his life. Right. But the, I think the great thing just to jump in on that, Sarah and Pat is the great thing about that, as you probably found, Sarah, is it's such a great learning experience when you have to work through that sort of trial with that dog when you have to work through that trial with a dog you find that it really starts defining you as a trainer because you really have to get deeply involved in the behavior aspect of the dog so everything that you learn on that dog and all the mistakes that you've made in purchasing that dog and having it and going through all those down moments with the dog if you learn from it it defines you much better as a dog handler trainer in the future Absolutely. And I will say I learned so much from him. I I credit that dog for a lot of my success because I don't think I would have gone down the path I did without him. That and I, I want to say that every single dog I've gotten has taught me a lesson of some sort. Yeah. And and talking about the genetic bandwidth and, and the ability for a dog to grow to a certain extent is definitely something I take in consideration with my current job and um, the dogs I have now. And so, for example, I have one Malinois. She was my first Malinois, and she's a fantastic dog, but she wasn't sold to me as a protection sport dog. She was sold to me as like an agility dog, a diving dog, a frisbee dog, that mm-hmm. kind of, of dog, because she just didn't quite have the nerve strength. So, you know, knowing me, I want to compete in monitoring. I want to compete in IGP. And so I would train her and she'd be great. And we'd have so many successes on the training field, but then we'd step on the trial field. And because I would be nervous, she would feed back into her natural state, which is a little bit nervous. And so then everything would kind of deteriorate. And so after every trial, I'm like, you know what? She just isn't enjoying this. I try preparing her as much as I can. And so I always joke that I retire her. So she's been retired from like monitoring and IGP about five times now (laughs) 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 because it's that realization of, I don't think she'll ever grow to be that dog that truly enjoys trialing. Mm -hmm. So she'll do it because I ask her to, and, but she's never going to be the dog that really, really enjoys getting out there and trial um, versus my other Malinois. That's what he lives for is going out there and beating up that decoy. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter what's going on around him. That's what he wants to do. Mm -hmm. And so you know, she's great with all these other sports that she does, agility, duck diving, frisbee, performing in front of audiences, halftime shows, you name it, she can do it. But protection sports, I don't think she has the genetic bandwidth to do those sports. Yeah, yeah. That's a good assessment. And I think a, one that a lot of people kind of have to come to terms with, right? And and people fight a little bit. Like, mm. it's just, this is the dog I have and God damn it, we're going to do this. And uh, exactly as you say, if the dog's not enjoying it, then it it really, it's aversive to the dog, right? To go out and trial and the pressure is too much and people sort of, you see that a fair bit, people forcing their dogs into situations they really shouldn't. Absolutely, um, yeah. So let's talk about, I heard the other day that you have 13 dogs. Is that true? 
Yes, I have 13. I actually have 14 in my house right now because I have one of my dogs' brother that's here um, just for kind of like a board and train type of a situation. Uh Yep, I have 13. I have everything from a little seven-pound Papillon all the way up to my Malinois that I compete in Madi Ring and IGP with. Mm -hmm. Um, I breed Australian coolies. They're a really, really cool breed. I'm sure you guys have met a few, hopefully, in Australia. They're not super common, but they are definitely there. Mm -hmm. So I have five of those. Can Can we talk about the coolies for a minute because yeah. uh is it disc and agility that you do with them or are they mostly just agility or what do you do yeah they do disc and agility and they're um pretty much my main performing dogs mm-hmm. um so i have i have zinga which is she's my eight-year-old australian coolie she was my first coolie and she does pretty much everything. She's a world frisbee champion. She duck dives almost as far as my Malinois do. She weighs a whole whopping 25 pounds soaking wet. Wow. So she's not very big at all. Um, and she is one of my trialing agility dogs. And but unfortunately here, we can't trial coolies unless they're altered. So right. they have to be spayed or neutered right. um, to trial an AKC. So <sighs> Is altered the yeah. new buzz name for desexing dogs now, is it? I don't know if it's new. It's what I've always said. I haven't heard that before. Altered. Oh, yeah. yeah altered. Yeah, yeah, they're just altered. It's mm. not fixed. They're not broken. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's circle back around to that because I'd like to have my whinge about that AKC and why we have to dissect the good dogs. But anyway, that let's come back to that. <laughs> but why coolies? I'm really interested in that, in that what is the difference really between a border collie? Like what is it that that's your breed and that's the one that you're, cause you imported one from Australia, right? Like you've got one I've that's from imported here. imported like seven from Australia. <laughs> yeah. So there's some, you've dropped some money into your coolie bloodline, yeah. right? So there's got to be a reason for that. And I know what's interesting for us in Australia, right, is uh, we struggle with the working dogs in regards to bite sports because, you know, we're an island, we have the bloodlines that we have, mm. and bite sports are not that common here. And so it's a real fight between police and military units and people who want to show their dogs on the field because there aren't a lot of great dogs that are capable of that. But in regards to Kelpies, Coolies, Border Collies, we got the good ones coming out our ears here, right? Like there's plenty of really good dogs of the highest possible world quality. But I'm really interested to know why coolies, like what is it about them that sets them apart from a border collie, why you want to, you know, train a coolie over a border collie? Yeah, so I have a border collie. I have and two border collie mixes. And obviously, my first dog was a border collie. So I have uh, quite a bit of experience with them as well. Um, The coolies are, are different. They... The lines I like, and so I'm, I always try to add that in. There's a lot of variation. Just like with border collies, there's a lot of variation within the lines. So sure. the lines I like tend to be harder temperament. So if they do a crazy Frisbee move and they crash, which happens in Frisbee, um, they get right back up and they try it again. So versus some of my border collie experience that has been that they – might be a little more hesitant on that move the second time around. Mm -hmm. The other thing about border collies is once they know their job, they are doing their job and they're doing that the same way every single time. Mm -hmm. Like they thrive off of patterns and they thrive off of repetition. Uh, The coolies aren't like that. (laughs) So it can be good and bad because they don't like drills. They don't like doing the same thing over and over again, but they're also way more entertaining to train because you don't know what they're going to throw at you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it can be a lot more fun training them just because they're a lot more creative in that regard. And they may make me laugh constantly. They're so funny, mm-hmm. which is like their expressions, their attitudes, the things they do, they don't take life too seriously, like a lot of border collies do. And that kind of fits right into what I do. I train my dogs every single day. It's my full-time job. And so I have to have fun. And so does my dog. I had an interesting experience with a border collie years ago when I first, the very first one I ever did a board and train with. Basically what happened is I took the dog out. I was uh, doing a little bit of yard work with the dog. I had the dog on a long line. The dog was showing a little too much interest in another dog in another field. And I gave the dog a pop on the collar and it looked like a fainting goat. It just basically, (laughs) it flopped to its side and it went stiff. And I thought, oh my God, I've broken its neck or something like that. And it wasn't even a hard pop. Like I was so shocked at the response from the dog. And, you know, I was terrified. I ran over to the dog. The dog was just laying on the ground with its whale eye and it was sitting there just stiff as a board. And I thought, what have I done? So I've picked the dog up. I've rushed it to the office. I said, I think I've done something to this dog. I took the dog down to the vet. And on the way down to the vet, the dog just sprung back to life and started having a good time again. And I'm thinking, what the hell is going on here? What is all this about? And I spoke to a few people and they said, oh, you don't know much about border collies, do you? I said, yeah. <laughs> what am I supposed to know? Like, what, what, have, what's happened? Like, what's the secret? And they said, 
Border Collies are great up until things don't go their way, and then when as soon as things don't go their way, they take it super personal and they'll just fo- mm-hmm. like, they'll just fold. And um, I yeah. don't I don't know if that's a true character assessment of all Border Collies, but I mean I've seen some pretty robust and tough ones out on Australian farms and so forth before. But I I'm also guessing that they're sort of a hybrid Border Collie as opposed to some of the more showline working or showline. Uh, border collies that you see these days but nonetheless it was a really interesting experience one that really knocked the air out of my sails for quite a period of time and I actually lost a bit of confidence in handling border collies I thought well that's the way that they behave I really don't know if I want to be involved in training border collies yeah they can be pretty particular and and I don't necessarily enjoy that to an aspect like I I like to be able to kind of train on the fly and adjust as I go and um, I want to train this and then that and I I like to kind of be um, not so methodical and border collies are super methodical and so for my agility and my disc training and my dock diving that sort of stuff I'm not very particular about how I train it we're going to go out and have a good time Mm. And so um, I found with my border collies, they they want to do that same thing. They want to know they're right and they want to do it the right way every single time. And and I have a, a cattle bred border collie. And so she's a little bit harder than other border collies, but she still really thrives off of patterns and repetition. Mm-hmm. And so for that reason, like she's a great dog. She's very solid working. She's one of my go to dogs. But yeah, it's that repetition thing. And, and she doesn't seem to have a sense of humor. And so she's very <laughs> serious about her work. <laughs> yeah, there's something to that about really actually enjoying your dog. My my Mally at the moment's a very silly dog. Like he does a lot of things that are I'm convinced he does for my entertainment and, and <laughs> yeah. like, uh, you know, I'm careful explaining that in front of dog trainers. I'm sure that he finds reinforcement in my amusement and that means that I spoil him when he amuses me and maybe that's why he displays those behaviors. Like I get all that, right? But right. I just love watching him do silly things and I'm convinced that he does them for my entertainment at times. And it like, it makes him owning a headache dog like him because he's, he's a lot of dog at other times, right? It, mm-hmm. it kind of puts some weight on the, the positive scale again. Where you go like, oh, yes. right. I, I was about to get rid of you because I was about to sell you to the army because you're driving me crazy. But I just remembered that I love you because you're sleeping upside down, like pretending you that you're, he will often pretend he's asleep. Like he'll keep his eyes <laughs> shut, even though I know full well he's awake. And then he waits till I... <laughs> I'll try and sneak up on him and then he'll spring to life and bite me and run away and stuff like that. Like it's just <laughs> really entertaining, dumb stuff. And it makes training, yeah. it makes owning a dog mm. so much more fun. Yeah. I will say that most of my coolies are giant pains in the butts and I only keep them because they're goofy and they make me laugh. <laughs> yeah. Do you find the coolies to be as spatially sensitive as a lot of the other herded to- dogs of their type? Or like, you know, like you, a lot of the times with border collies, like you, where you might teach a border collie to heal over a Malinois would be really different, right? Because if you lean mm-hmm. into a border collie, they're going to give you that space. Whereas a Malinois will probably lean into that space that you took. Where does a coolie fit on that, that scale? Or your blood Typically, I, I don't see the spatial with my lines and my dogs in particular. I don't see the spatial thing a lot. I have mm-hmm. no trouble teaching them to do dog catches or jump off my body. Or if I step into them, they will step right back into me. Um, so I don't see that a lot versus, yeah, like the border collies. The big problem that we have in disc is during a handoff. So you throw the Frisbee dog, catches the Frisbee. They bring it back as fast as they can. They put it in your hand so that you can throw it again, right? Mm-hmm. So it's a speed game and you have to have that all dialed in. Well, border collies, they they get that whole spatial thing, like the pressure of the person bending down to pick up the Frisbee will affect about how they bring that Frisbee back. Mm-hmm. And they'll start dropping it earlier and earlier and earlier and not delivering it to the hand. So that's mm-hmm. a big problem that we have to deal with with the border collies. All of my coolies have no problem slamming that Frisbee into me as hard as they can. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just not a problem we really have to deal with. So let me take a step back because I want to talk about this. So what is it exactly that you compete in? It's agility, dock diving, disc. And did you say you've won a world championship in, in disc, right? Yeah. So the up dog challenge, it's a newer venue. Um, and the world finals is coming up here in April. I'm going down to judge that, but it's, uh, it's a really cool new venue and you guys do have it out in Australia as well. It's not just a traditional toss and catch. So most Frisbee venues are breaking, broken down into toss and catch, which is just a normal game of fetch. You throw the Frisbee, it's geared on accuracy, speed, and the catch rate, right? And then you have freestyle, which is the tricks. So the dog jumping off of me, doing the flips and all that crazy stuff that's set to music. Mm-hmm. Those are your two traditional Frisbee games. And then you have long distance as well. Well, Updog, what they do is they take 
all of the elements that you need for a successful freestyle dog. So flat work and um, dropping at a distance and all those little skills that people don't really think about. And they put them into strategy games. So they have a whole bunch of different games that you can play that are outside of the toss and fetch and freestyle. And so it's a blast. And so my coolies, um, zip tie won the overall at the first Updog International Finals, and then Zynga won freestyle that year, and then Ziptie won freestyle the year after that. And then at that point, I stopped competing in Frisbee because I just don't have the time anymore. Right. And you said that's here in Australia, that that exists here? Yeah. Yep, yep. So um, you guys do have Updog Challenge in Australia. Um, I think it was brought up a couple of years ago, and I just brought it out to New Zealand as well. Cool. And I heard that you mentioned that you're a judge as well, so you've just added that to your repertoire. Yeah. Yeah. So I do judge um, Frisbee. Yep. That's pretty cool. I'm so far out of that community, right? Like I'm more in the protection sports, but recently I was in the States and talking to a few people that I, you know, there were a couple of people at each seminar I did that were into Frisbee and asking me specifics about it. And I just kind of stood there with a blank look on my face (laughs) Um, and I had to get them to explain the rules to me. Like, okay, but what, like, I know dog training, so tell me what the dog has to do and I can maybe give you some advice on how we can get him to do that faster and more precise. But then they were explaining it to me and I was like, you know, I have never done this. I, this is, But it was, sounded really cool and I was thinking this is something. Like my dog's crazy for the Frisbee, he loves to catch it, mm-hmm. it amuses me. And I've been playing with the idea, like I still haven't really looked into it that much, but the idea of, you know, that fast return because I didn't realize how important that was, right, that it's, a, it's for reps, right, in a lot of times. So the dog's got to get yeah. back to you fast so you can throw it fast. Yes. And they have to put it right into your hand. So when your dog has a fast return, that means it's in your hand. They're already going around you or they're already running out. So they're running out without you even throw that Frisbee yet. Mm -hmm. And that way they can get out to where you're going to throw it and actually catch it. So it's all about timing and where are you putting your throws and how fast are you and everything else. I will say that that handoff can be quite dangerous. Yeah. Uh, my That's what I've just found out. (laughs) Yeah. One of my Malinois, she doesn't have the slam into me handoff anymore because she gave me pancreatitis. Wow. She hit me so hard. Yeah. Oh, wow. So she gave me internal organ damage because <laughs> she hit me too hard. So now she has a down and I grab the first game and then she goes. I'm like, I will take the seconds. It's fine. Uh-huh. That's funny. Wow. Who would ever thought there's so much danger involved in disc dogs? Oh, man, I have no more nerve feeling on my vaulting leg. So because I do Frisbee for a living, I perform shows yep. for the last six years, five years, six years. I've been at Perina Farms performing every day. But now I'm leaving Purina. This week is my last week, which is very exciting because that means I get to go do more teaching and that sort of thing. Um, but I'll still be doing halftime shows and fairs and festivals. And so my left leg, my vaulting leg, where my dogs jump off of, it has no nerves anymore. Like I cannot wow. feel anything. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Look, if you're involved in sport dogs at some stage, you're going to get belted in by a dog or something like that. I mean, I got a meniscus tear in my right leg from a a dog that I was trying to catch and it went off target and hit me in the wrong, like it hit me on the wrong side of the body and completely took my leg out, felt like it bent it sideways. But, you know, I kind of expect that when you're catching dogs or doing bite sports, but not from a disc dog. But I mean, the game to the in the dog's mind, I guess, is, is all the same is if you've got a disc in your hand and I'm going to get it off you, it's, uh, you know, and they boot into drive, they're just thinking about collecting that disc or whatever the object is. It doesn't matter if it's a sleeve or whatever. So yeah, I guess the risk is real. It is. It's very, very real. <laughs> so we're kind of bouncing all over the place, uh, but that's our style. So too bad. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> um, so let's go back again. So where did you receive like a formal education in dog training? Because you mm. mentioned Karen Pryor before. Yep. So yep. were you at you were at the Karen Pryor Academy? Is that correct? Yeah, so I graduated from the Karen Pryor Academy. Julie Shaw was my instructor, and that would probably be my only formal education. And so the rest of it has all been mentor-based. I was fortunate enough to work under a fantastic agility instructor up in Minnesota, Michelle Schwartzbauer at On The Run Canine Center. And she kind of took me under her wing, taught me about teaching classes and that sort of thing, and, and really helping with my agility handling. And then, yeah, from there, it's just going to a lot of seminars, learning from as many different people as possible, going to conferences and just keep learning. Mm -hmm. So, Sarah, let's just talk a little bit more about the Karen Pryor Academy, because I don't know anything about the curriculum of that. How long did it go for? What was the topics covered? Like, tell us a little bit about your experience at the Academy. Yeah, so Karen Pryor Academy, it's mostly remote. So the classes, it's a six-month program. The classes are online, but then you have to go for four different weekends um, for some in-person instruction. And so that's the workshop portion of it. Karen Pryor really, really 
focuses on clicker training. So your traditional clicker training with good mechanics and how to free shape and how to really nail that part down, which I was super grateful for because even though I had been doing, you know, clicker training since I was 11, it was muddy. It wasn't as precise and learning those really proper mechanics helped me really learn how the dog learns, but then also how to take it to the next level. And so I would say that the more I'm away from Karen Pryor stuff, the more I'm having fun with marker training. And so it's kind of a give and take, like you have to learn those proper mechanics, but now you'd probably like, wow, she graduated from Karen Pryor. That's not at all how she does it. And it's right. It's not because I use multiple markers. Sometimes I'm sloppy. Sometimes mechanics don't matter to me because the dog's emotional state matters more. Um, And Mm. so while I'm really grateful for the education from Karen Pryor Academy, and it's a fantastic program, I really, really do recommend it. Um, I think most of my learning has been done outside of it. and, And I think that's, goes with their program as well because they really try to push you to get that in-person experience yeah i'm hearing what you're saying my belief is the best system for you is the one that works best between you and your dog i think that you know like a lot of times people get so fixated on a system that they see somebody else doing and having success with but they really struggle with that yet they try and remain traditionalist to that and then they find that it's just not working like they either don't understand it well enough or the application that they're trying to apply between them and their dog is not very successful. And yet when I've seen people a little bit freed up from that and a little bit liberated and probably further educated along the line, when they relax their criteria a little bit and they develop a better understanding between them and their dog, I see the relationship open up and blossom a little bit more. Yeah. And that's a very, very important point. And I think it's true for, for, like you said, whatever system you're using, whatever methods you're using, if you try to do it exactly how somebody else does, it's, it's never going to be successful. You take a little bit from that person, a little bit from this person and you create your own has always been my philosophy. Mm. And I feel like relationship is the most important part of everything. Um, and so if my dog is really struggling, learning something, I'm not going to wait for the criteria. I'm going to click for a happy attempt at something that doesn't even have to be close to what it is, but it's my dog happy you know I just have to find a way to get that rate of reinforcement up and get my dog moving again and not worry so much about the criteria itself and so I think that's a huge thing that people need to pay attention mm, to that that's something that I feel very strongly about as well and and I'd like to explore that because I've heard you speak about it is that rather than focusing on very precise mechanics going for the emotional state of the dog It's something I talk about a lot is like I reward attitude over behavior a lot because if my dog, you know, one thing I see is maybe, you know, we talk about the stand and like, you know, the stand can be a tricky thing to teach and it's quite unnatural to kick out the way that we always want the dog to do it. And you see people like they're training the stand and and they don't like it. So they don't reinforce and they're trying to get it. And it becomes kind of self-fulfilling prophecy that the harder they try to get this stand, the worse it gets. And it can be really counterintuitive to say mm-hmm. to people like, just pay like crazy for that terrible stand, like just absolutely pay. And in my world, like the reason I would do that is once a dog falls back in love with the behavior and is performing their shitty version of it um, with heart and soul they're loving to do it then I can use a little bit of pressure to bring them back into line and get them to back to how I want it and the dog will happily accept that but what I'm really curious is like I know you're from like a you, you try to avoid as much pressure as possible right and and tools of that nature so how then once you bring back the attitude or, or you, you're careful never to lose it how do you then sharpen the behavior again so that's a really really good point and a good exercise on balance. So I do, I say reward effort because most of these behaviors, like you said, are based on effort. If my dog is questioning it, they're not going to put the enthusiasm in, which isn't going to create the behavior that I want. Right. So enthusiasm is everything. And we have to make sure we're rewarding that. I use I would rather split the behavior down into little bits that my dog can be successful at and then micromanage it that way. Because like you said, I don't use corrections, so I can't correct them back later, but I can use a rear foot target, for example, to help my dog learn to pop back in that stand. Mm -hmm. And I can fade that down. I could also mark for the precise muscle movement that I'm looking for versus the actual movement itself. Like, are they engaging those muscles that I need them to, or am I waiting for that full pop back? So I split a lot of behaviors down to tiny, tiny little bits. Mm -hmm. That way I can keep the precision, keep my dog successful, keep their attitude and enthusiasm high because the rate of reinforcement is high and then build on that for sure. So it's a really fine balance between reward effort, but don't reward things that could potentially become a bad habit. (laughs) Mm. 
Yeah, that that for sure is is where I struggle again to even talk about that standards of behavior. Like my own dog barks as he stands, and it, I, I'm quite sure it's a superstitious behavior that he's built into it because I taught it through frustration, and it was probably sort of a extinction related sort of like, is this what you want? And then I, <laughs> I marked and said, yeah, that is. But it's a really difficult thing to remove, right? Because it's a part of that chain, and and I'm that's why you know I taught him that three years ago, right? So you. You learn and you progress as you move on with different dogs. And I love the idea of that, breaking it into the smallest possible piece that the dog can get. Like, okay, you got that? Like your foot has to go here and it's not a stand yet. This is just, you have to put your foot here. And when everything's together, that's when we can link it all and say, okay, now this is actually the stand. Right, right. And then because I've broken down into so many steps, if I do have a problem later on, like barking in positions or something like that, I can always go back to those lesser criteria, the rear foot targeting or whatever I may have used and get rid of that bark in that picture and then mm-hmm. bring it back. So I don't have to really worry about the criteria of the stand itself, just the criteria of not barking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's an interesting concept when you're talking to a lot of high level trainers is that when you really get down to the nitty gritty of the secret source of what they're doing is they're just very good at separating things out. Like it's, it's kind of like the way, even when we talk about editing the show or something like that, like I use a program called Adobe audition. And what I can do is I can stretch it right out almost to infancy. So I can get like, if there's a sound in there, that's a a tiny little bothersome sound, I can actually pull it right apart and pick that little sound out you know, like a lot of times when I watch people in different disciplines in dog training, they're doing exactly the same thing with their dog training. Like people who are struggling are just, their increments are too large. They're not focusing on pulling that down and dissecting it as far as they possibly can. They're frustrated because all they know is that, you know, they're working on meters when they really need to be working on millimeters. Right. And I do think that comes with experience. I think the other thing that experienced trainers have that other people don't, people that are just starting a sport, is we know where bad habits can pop up. Mm -hmm. And so I know what I can let my dog get away with because it'll probably go away on its own. And I know where I definitely don't want my dog to head down. And so that's one of those things where experience is, is literally the only way to get it. And that's pretty unfortunate unless you have somebody who is helping you that has that experience. Um, and so I always try to be easy on my newer handlers and just let them know like, Hey, no, I know this is going to become a problem later on. So you, you really need to prevent that from becoming a problem versus I don't even know it. I think it's a combination of both those things for sure. So they're lumping criteria a lot and they just don't know which bad habits to focus on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a concept that I've been trying to employ as much as possible. And I mean, it's even for myself because you be, you can become internally institutionalized. It's something that I talk about with my own trainers and anybody who cares to listen. It's called second set of eyes. You can use it as a life skill in business or everything in that, because if you, if you just focus on what you're doing all the time, you can miss the point. It's a problem that I've had in my own training is that I've thought, well, you know, I'm an experienced trainer. I should be able to work my way through this. But sometimes you get too proud and too egotistical just to say to someone, hey, I need you to look at this for me and just pick apart what is it that I'm doing wrong? What is the point that I'm missing here? And it can be so blaringly obvious sometimes, but you're just in a mindset where you just don't develop the skills or the necessary componentry to to look at it yourself objectively, yet somebody else will see it and they'll say, wow, man, you know, like this is what you're doing. And uh, if if you change this, you'll get a better response from it. I really enjoy that when somebody can help you just pick something out of your routine that can change the dynamic altogether. Absolutely. So that's a big lesson from agility. Most instructors that I know, so people who are actively teaching, if they're competing with their dogs, they are in classes with other instructors Mm. watching them. Mm. And so, or they have somebody that they train with on a weekly basis that watches them because you, you can't watch yourself run agility. And even if you watch a video later, it doesn't matter because it's not in that moment that that it's happening. And so a lot of times we don't know, is it the dog or is it me? You know, we always say in agility that it's always the handler's fault, but sometimes that's not necessarily true. And so we always bounce this line between was it the dog's fault or my fault? Was it a verbal discrimination issue or was it my shoulders are pointed the wrong way? Mm. And so having that second set of eyes is so, so important. And then um, the online classes actually really help out with that now, or even the online training groups that are popping up all over the place because yeah it's a video so it's a little bit delayed but you're getting that second set of eyes even if you're not near anybody that trains 
the sport that you do for monitoring. That's a huge example. It's not a popular sport here in the United States. I'm fortunate enough to have an amazing working dog club that is my second set of eyes. But I know a lot of people that they don't live close to any monitoring clubs. And so, you know, we watch videos, we help each other out and we do what we can for those people. On that topic of Mondio, so that's something I'm, I'm really interested to pick your brain in, in that you've you've only recently started showing a Mondio, right? Or, or in the last couple of years, is that is that correct? Yeah, so I was introduced to Mondio Ring by Maureen Haggerty up in Minnesota. She competes with Dobermans, mm-hmm. and she was actually my, my friend's boss at the time, and she invited me and my coolie, so Bazinga, my eight-year-old coolie, out to play Mondio Ring, and I fell in love with it then, but then when I moved down to St. Louis, there was no Mondio Ring club, and so... I had gotten my Malinois, and so I, I transferred to IGP. I'm like, I'm going to do shuts and It's fine. It's not the sport I fell in love with, but it's close, right? Well, you know, we, we tried it. We did our best. And then I'm like, you know what? I'm just going to go back to Mondio. And so I was fortunate enough to meet up with Chad Byerly and Sarah Keegan's out in Ohio at Posse Dog Learning Center and, and Fair Play Mondio Club. And they really helped me get started. So they helped me switch gears, get into Mondio. That was about three years ago. And then I was able to purchase Creature, my current trial dog, who's actually going to trial for the very first time. He's two years old on March 15th. So we're very, very excited. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, so pretty new to the sport. Absolutely love the sport. It's it's amazing the stuff that we have to train our dogs to do. you got to yeah. tell us now where the name Creature came from. Is it a Harry Potter theme thing or is it something else? So it's a, it's a really cool story. So the litter theme was Harry Potter and his litter name was Remus. And I hadn't listened to Harry Potter or watched the movies or anything or read the books for the first year of his life and I had renamed him to creature like there's a creature lurking in the woods right I'm like that's a cool dog name right (laughs) and then I fell in love with Harry Potter and I changed his spelling back to the Harry Potter version of creature right (laughs) that's cool um so I'd love to talk to you a little bit about the challenge some of the challenges you might have faced in Mondio with like your choice to stick or to stay away from corrections and, and prep tools of pressure, right? I guess the added degree of difficulty you've chosen really to impose on yourself in that because we face uh, in the protection sports, it's something, well, let me explain. You know, we're balanced trainers, but I am super interested in people who have chosen to restrict themselves to force, like to, to positive only training because you, when you restrict yourself to that quadrant, you better be fucking good at it, right? And so there's much to learn. And I, I understand it's like largely an ethics choice and whatever, right? So we don't need to have that debate or, or discussion. But what I am interested in is, you know, one of the problems we face is that sometimes the things that your dog really, really wants to do, you have to get him to not do that. But then he still needs to do that. So it's not like you can just take it off the table. Like in in a lot of um, like people who train in, in without any use of corrections, they say, well, that behavior, that expression is no longer ever available to you. And I'll put a, a whole heap of rewards and, you know, reward delivery outside of that behavior and you'll no longer find value in it. But in the bite sports, you don't get to do that. You have to let him bite. So the thing he wants to do the most, he has to be able to do and you have to keep that behavior alive. But then you also have to have him perform, you know, when you get to the higher levels of Mondio, it'll be a lot of... Um, you know, obedience and control work in the presence of the decoy. It's not quite PSA madness where you're going to get to the point where decoys are literally trying to steal your dog, but certainly, you know, in the defensive handler and that sort of thing, you're going to have to, you know, control those motivators where you you say to the dog, like, this is something I know you really, really want to do and that you are going to get to do it, but you have to find value in this other thing that you, I need you to do. And I'd love to, if you have like, any tips on that and, and experience in that? I'd love to hear the challenges that you faced because, you know, I play PSA. I don't do Mondio. That's a whole nother story why we don't. But <laughs> if you go back through episodes, you'll hear it. But a big issue that I spend a lot of time encouraging people to do is to teach their dog to take a toy reinforcer from them in the presence of the helper and really find it reinforcing, like not take it begrudgingly and say like, yeah, I'll take this as a stepping stone to getting to bite, but actually take the toy. And because, you know, we have a retrieve from between two decoys, the decoys will be actively trying to be bitten. I'll throw an, a, an unknown item out. The dog has to get it and bring it back. And if I constantly train that with the, you know, you do this for the bite, then 
there's still a lot of stuff has to happen after that, right? Like I can't just let my dog bite that because we're still doing obedience. So I have to really be able to reinforce my dog in a way that he finds reinforcing and it not be the actual thing that he wants. And I'd love to hear your tips and how you've managed that. Yeah, that's a lot. (laughs) Um, So I will say, I will say I chose monitoring specifically because of the challenges it presents as an R plus trainer. Mm -hmm. So as a trainer that doesn't use tools or corrections, I specifically chose it because it's a challenge. And I will say that when people approach me interested in joining our club or they approach me asking if it's possible to train uh, monitoring without corrections or reverses, I ask them if it's more important the journey and training their dog or getting the title. Mm -hmm. Because if it's more important to get that title and they're on a timeline and they want to get that title, I highly, highly recommend going the traditional route just because or the balanced route. I'm just talking the normal training without restricting to a quadrant. Sure. Just because we don't know what we're doing. <laughs> There's so few of us <laughs> out here and every dog's different that it's it's really, really challenging. That being said, by doing monitoring and restricting myself to the quadrants that I have restricted myself, I have learned so much about what you're talking about. Take not just the toy and play with me around a decoy, but I want you to eat food around the decoy. Cool. Now I want you to hunt for food in the grass around the decoy. All right. Now do your little wood handler scent discrimination with that little woods placed between the decoy's feet while he's dancing around. Mm-hmm. So I want I want all of that. And so I always joke that my obedience is PSA level obedience when I train it. So I have decoys out there and they're being idiots and they're trying to distract my dog and I'm doing obedience around them mm-hmm. because if I train at that level, then I know a trial will be pretty easy for monitoring, yeah, right? Because we don't have decoys out during obedience, just defensive handler and the start line stays, blah, blah, blah. So in order to get that and get the results I want, my dog has to be able to drop arousal levels. So I talk a lot about in my classes and my seminars and everything about uh, arousal mobility. And it's not a technical term or anything like that. It's just a term that makes sense to me. But how do I change my dog from that fight drive of fighting the decoy and potentially defense if it's just not going the way I want it to go or he doesn't, you know, um, how do I go from that drive all the way down to hunt drive where he's in a thoughtful state of mind or just above that where he's able to pay attention to me? Mm-hmm. So how can I teach my dog how to do that in a way that doesn't initially involve the behaviors? So that's where all my markers come in. Can you do um, run as fast as you can because I want to throw a ball in front of you and then come back and do um I don't know, I'll hand food to you. Can you do that? And then jump in between those and so on and so forth. So I teach them how to move arousal levels based just on reinforcers to begin with. And I start inserting behaviors in there. So then can you go and do a face attack, accessory attack on the decoy, come back to that same start and prep line, and then do a little wood search right between the decoy's feet? Mm -hmm. That's what I want. And so it starts all on those markers and those reinforcement deliveries and teaching my dog to jump from high arousal down to low arousal and so on and so forth so that he can do those things. So that he can go from um, that, you know, face attack or flea attack or whatever it may be into defensive handler where it's a very controlled exercise. And then the object guard, which is even more controlled exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have kind of a similar thing I use. I get my dog to bite my finger. It's kind of a high risk (laughs) maneuver. (laughs) But I'll regularly do that, especially in a really heightened state of arousal. And because there's a good relationship there, like I know he's not going to bite my finger off, right? He's not going to chomp my finger. And if he's too highly aroused, he won't do it because he knows like, hey, I can't safely, I can't safely do that, right? And it's a very, for me, it's more of a diagnostic tool. Like I can see to my dog, exactly. like how far gone are you? And so, you know, recently, you know, I had him on the table and, you know, I had someone doing some really heavy pressure work to him, like really putting the hurts on him. And then I stopped the decoy and I say to him, hey, bite my finger. And it took a few reps, right? Like it took him to really calm down and, and but it, I can, you can physically watch him settle himself like he can change gears and change drives and i think that that's something that in the protection sports you know i got that from barbell and and so that's not a that's not something or he probably who knows where he got it from or, or come up with it himself but it's not a very traditional thing it's it's, it's outside the right. norm to teach a dog like hey while you are in the highest state of arousal and i intentionally put you there right like on purpose i got someone to get you as riled up as you can get now i need you to do a very technical and precise behavior and it resonated i was listening to you talk about something similar to this recently it resonated with me because 
I never need my dog to bite my finger. That's I'll never be yep. judged on that, right? That is just a disposable behavior. So that the the criteria of which can be quite sloppy. I don't need to, you know, it doesn't have to look a particular way. I can do it however. But, but it, it helps him to center himself. That's right. It mm-hmm. calms himself yep. down. And it's something I and can do sneakily on the field as well. Like I can say to him, like, you know, between exercises, between bites, mm. I can put my finger out and say, hey, like and and what I find with my own dog, it ends up being kind of like a little sooky, like a dummy. Like he he a pacifier. He, yeah, he takes it in his yeah. mouth and you can see him center himself around it. And he mm. it's a way of being able to say to my dog, change gears now. Go from high arousal to low arousal. And so it's an interesting thing. And I, when I heard you talk about it the other day, I was listening to something you were on and I was like, oh, I'll do something similar to that, right? Now, of course, later in the end, I'll be able to compel him to change gears. Like I, I'll lay a pressure over that so that if I have to, I can say you must change gears right now. And, and I've layered the pressure at the front end to be able to do that. But it, was, it really resonated with you when you were talking about, I think I, I heard you talking about a send away. Can you explain that? Like you, you teach the send away and then you came back to scatter food. So it's really changing gears in that way. Yeah. So we do something very, very similar in my bomb proof behaviors class and, and seminar. We teach baseline games and it's something just stupid like that. Right. So it's not a behavior you care about. It's a behavior that is just literally a test. Like, how do you normally perform this? Can you perform it on that same level, even though you're really distracted or you're really, really excited or whatever it may be? And that test we can do over and over again until they are able to come back down and do that. But it's just merely information. And it's something like that, that we don't care how they do it and we don't care about getting bad reps on it. It's just a way for them to tell us, yes, hey, no, I'm here. I'm ready to go. And so with all my students, they have a ton of different really cool baseline games like that. You know, I tried I really hard to let them be creative with their baseline games because it's, it's got to be something that can work for them and their sport. So like you said, you can do it on the field sneakily, of course, <laughs> or some sort of start pattern like creature, all of his high arousal stuff that happens on my left side, all of the calm stuff that happens on my right side. So if he's on my right side, it's probably a downstay or something boring. If it's on my left side, it's probably biting the decoy or retrieve or something or a send away or something excellent like that. Mm-hmm. Now with the send away, I train it with just a bird launcher. So I put a ball on a bird launcher, send my dog and the, it's actually a marker for him um, saying, Hey, I want to, this toy is going to magically appear in front of you, run away from me as fast as you can. Mm-hmm. So it is definitely of the obedience exercise. It's definitely his favorite one. And so I always use that for an example for a high arousal obedience behavior. So that's a step down, obviously from biting the decoy, but it's a nice one to use. And I can actually use a send away to reinforce the behavior chain that happened before it. So that's what I'm doing right now, actually with creature. He's learning a call off of a decoy. So it's a send to the decoy. Decoy, I whistle before he bites, he comes back. Right. And so I'm doing this to help strengthen the whistle value. And so the step he's at right now, it was immediately to a reward before. Now it's recall, flip back to my right side, walk aways, and then I prep him for his send away and I send him to a send away. Mm-hmm. And so obviously in training, the ball appears, but in a trial, the ball wouldn't appear. Mm-hmm. And there's not going to be an order like that in a trial. But at least it gives him that sense of something happens after a call off and it's not a reward right away. So it's a a way to kind of chain those behavior chains together. Um, I'm curious when you taught the call off there and you do whistle, how do you set that up? Like, do you do that online so that you can like it can Right. So you're taking that risk. She's yeah. shaking her head. No, I, For people I who can't see, she's shaking her head. Splitting that <laughs> that criteria a ton. Oh, yeah. So um, he first learned to call off of going to a perch. So all my dogs know to go to a perch and stay there. So Mm -hmm. I'd send him the perch, send him the perch, send him the perch, send him the perch, call off before he gets there. Mm -hmm. Then he learned to call off of wrapping around a jump standard, which is one of his favorite things. And then he learned to call off of a food bowl. And then he learned to call off of a toy placed, a low value toy, then a higher value toy, then somebody holding a toy. And then finally a decoy holding a sleeve and then decoy in a suit. Mm -hmm. And so at each point, I'm doing his arousal mobility in between each rep. So we don't just do rep after rep because that just skyrockets arousal. But he's learning to come back down so that he has a capability to call off on the next rep. Yeah. So it's a a long process. (laughs) Yeah. So long process because you need 100% success rate, right? Because if you ever call him off and he says no or, you know, 
chooses not to, you're then in a position where he can reinforce. So you, you're really careful to never allow, to put him in a position to think that he should do that, right? Like you've got enough reps to come back. Yeah, yes and no. So I am positive reinforcement, but I do use non-reward markers mm-hmm. um, and I do tell him no. So he's a very strong dog. And so if I say no, and it doesn't have to be harsh or anything, if I say creature, no, he lets go of whatever he has and comes back to me. So right. I'm very fortunate. And the reason why he's like that is because I don't use very much of it at all. Mm -hmm. It's such a rare occurrence because I do spend so much time setting him up for success. Mm -hmm. So because everything should be successful and, and because his value for the thing actually comes through me, it's bringing it back to me and playing with me and and that sort of thing that doesn't happen if he's not right. So if I say, oops, which is his non-reward marker, he's like, oh, okay, I didn't do it right. I'm not going to get that play. I'm not going to get that interaction, which is really what he wants. Mm -hmm. Do you have a method for loading that non-reinforcing marker or you just kind of use it as you go? I just kind of use it. I always like to add, I don't recommend it for every dog out there. Um, my other Malinois famous non reward markers are not her thing at all. They cause her so much stress and anxiety. She just wants to be right. And for her to hear that she was wrong, she cannot handle it. Mm-hmm. And so I've poisoned a lot of things trying to use it with her. And so I always recommend not using it. I think the other part of it is that I don't rely on it. So I don't use non reward markers as a way of teaching something. Mm-hmm. Just more or less, if a mistake happens, it's just communication like, nope, that we got to start this over. That's not the way it was supposed to go. And so I never go into a training session like, okay, if he makes a mistake, I'm going to use a non-reward marker to help him learn. That's not how I use them. It's more or less just a reset. And so I think at that point, my body language tells it and he can kind of really see that, nope, we're not, we're going to start over again, that kind of thing. And I think that helps communicate it. Yeah. It's something I struggle with a little bit, the non-reward marker, because I with some dogs, I think it's really important to have like the average pet dog in the home. I think you want to be able to, when he looks as though he's going to bite the couch, you want to be able to say, Hey, no, you can't do that. And I load that with food. Like, you know, I just put the food on the floor and tell them no. And every, like what in their attempts to get it. And then when they eventually give up trying to get it, then I say yes. And they can have it or something else. Right. Like, so it's a very, it's very easy thing to load. But I also think with a working dog, you are actually teaching your dog to give up. Like that is what you're doing in doing that. And I don't, I certainly don't want to get a, a working puppy in the, in the mind frame of I stop doing things at all, right? You want to just point them in the direction right. you want and let them go full steam as often as possible. So it's a tricky That one. comes back to the rewarding enthusiasm, right? Yeah, And totally. so if we're telling puppies, no, you're not doing it right and we're using non-remarked cards or even a sensitive dog, then we're, we're not rewarding that. We're killing their enthusiasm. Yeah, that's right. Right. And you're sort of teaching them it's possible you could be wrong with like the young dog for me. I just want to point them, point them at right and let them express themselves as fully as possible and really develop into the, the, the most robust version of themselves as possible. Right. So you're back in Australia in November, right? And what are you teaching then? Cause I'm interested in the class you just talked about there. What was it called again? Bombproof behaviors. Bombproof behaviors. Um, so bombproof behaviors is kind of it's loosely based on the challenges that Monty Ring presents as well as like my normal job. So my normal job, I'm out at fairs and festivals. There's kids with corn dogs in the front row and my dogs still have to perform. Mm-hmm. And so it kind of is built out of necessity from that. I teach it online. It is happening right now. So it'll probably be a good another six, eight months before it happens again online. But it is one of the seminars I'm teaching when I'm out in Australia. So okay, I think cool. we're doing like tricks one day and then we're doing my clear communication, which is um, building marker systems and sport foundation behaviors another day. And the final day is bomb proof behaviors. Okay, cool. And your marker system, you have different ones for different dogs, right? Like you don't, it's not just like a blanket. This is what I do. And, and is that really specific to the sport the dog intends to do or just the dog itself? Yeah, I use a different marker system for each dog. Generally, it's based on the sport. So my Frisbee and Agility dogs, they don't have the need of 16 different markers. That creature has the need for, for example. But there are a lot of times where I'm like, hey, this would be another great spot for a marker. So my marker systems are very loosely based on my needs with that dog and how I feel they'll be benefiting our training in that session. So I don't go into it like all my dogs need to learn the system. Every dog should learn the system. It's more like, um, what does your normal session look like? Could you benefit? What are your dog's strengths and weaknesses? Could you benefit from adding a marker marker here or there? Okay, cool. So the class is not just how to load those markers, but also how to consider which ones you should have. And- Customizable per yeah. dog. 
Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So we talk about a variety of different markers and then how to add them in there, as well as there's a few other communication parts that I do add talk about in that seminar. So things like start cues and cues, that sort of thing. And we talk a lot about free shaping, but in my own very special cheater way. So I call it cheater shaping. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully Karen Pryor doesn't hear me say that. Uh, I talk about um, free shaping as, you know, the difference between free shaping and luring to me is it's a little bit like Theseus's ship, you know, I don't know if you're ever familiar with that thought experiment, uh-uh. like, it's, you know, Theseus has this ship and it carries the souls of the dead and it's magic, but the thing is ships wear out, right? So like if you replace the sail on that ship and you put it on, like, is the ship still magic? And if you take, like, of course the keel will wear out eventually, so you have to put a new one on and the rudder and all these sorts of things. And everybody has a different interpretation about when that's a new ship, right? And then you could then say, okay, well, like eventually all those parts are going to be replaced. Is it still the magic ship? And if you get the old parts and rebuild a new ship, do you now have two magic ships? And everybody's answer is different. And I think- wait. Why would a magic ship wear out? <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Good point. but I think I, I feel that way about the difference between luring and free shaping because in between there's capturing and molding and blah, blah, blah. There's all of these different things, but I've been involved in so many arguments of people saying yeah, it's no, very no, open to interpretation. Yeah. What the two are. And so I, I talk, you know, my dog, my current dog was free shaped completely. And I've had people then contact me and say, you don't even know what free shaping is you idiot, because I've seen you use a box. So you're actually molding. And that's where I decided that everybody's opinion of what is the difference between free shaping and luring, it really falls on a spectrum and everybody is different. It's one of those things that we could argue about forever as to, yeah. you know, how did you teach that? And well, it it's a be- very, it's still a very new concept in training application. So it is very open to interpretation because the person who came up with free shaping, they have an opinion on what that is. And then when everybody else, as you said, you know, like this is magic ship. They all appear to say, okay, well, my interpretation of free shaping is no interaction at all. The dog just doing a behavior and then clicking it and yeah. then suddenly rewarding it where other people will go, well, it's, it could be a bit of spatial pressure and then clicking and rewarding that. And that's yeah. free shaping. And, so and, yeah, but it's I very think the, open. The whole thing can be simplified by saying, I like shaping, right? But I cheat a lot. <laughs> and so I say, I help the dog as much as necessary, but as little as possible. And, and you can simple it like for me, that's how I like to simplify the whole thing. I help him as much as he needs from me, but as little as I can get away with. So since we've talked about this, Sarah, what's your interpretation of free shaping? So my opinion on free shaping, like I said, I really, really have a lot of value in the proper mechanics where you are standing there. The reinforcement happens at the same point. Mark happens with a clicker and the dog is offering that behavior 100% and you're molding that into the behavior you're not molding because that's a term that <laughs> this is the problem so right hard. this is the problem so hard. Um, and and building that behavior into the end goal right so that's the free shaping like that's 100% pure but I also find that, you know, dogs have evolved forever to read us so well. So like, why wouldn't we take advantage of things like jackpots and reward placement and maybe a little bit of messy mechanics here and there? So of course I have my ways of doing that, but like you said, as little help as possible, um, Mm -hmm. because I don't want to have to fade anything out later. I am really, really a lazy trainer when it comes to fading things, which is why I tend to not lure anything because I hate fading a lure out. So the, the less amount of work I have to do in the long run, I'm happier. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so I would say free shaping, man. Yeah. Like you said, there's a million different definitions out there and that's why I kind of just say mine's cheater and it's my version of it. And you know, that's, I guess, the way I keep away from the actual termo- terminology of it. Free shaping is very fleeting originally anyway, because once you start free shaping, I mean, it's around an organic behavior that just happens spontaneously that you happen to like and happen to reward. After that period of time, I mean, you're going to start getting involved in that and it starts becoming more about shaping than it does free shaping. So it started in free shaping, but then it has to transgress quickly into shaping because you're going to start using markers and tools and gestures around that behavior to get the dog to repeat it more often. That's my theory. Well, anyway. yeah. 
And I definitely agree with that. And that definitely falls in line with what I do. Um, but like when you look at the actual free shaping itself, none of that stuff is supposed to be in there. It's supposed to be dog does the thing you mark and the reward happens. And you're yep. supposed to stay completely still um, in between that. And so there should be no influence mm. and your reward placement should always be in the same spot. So it shouldn't influence it. So I think there is a version of free shaping where there aren't any of that extra help things. But I don't necessarily subscribe to that as the best method because like I said, dogs have evolved for a long time, learning our cheater ways. So we might as well take advantage of that. Mm. And that kind of comes down to, um, I have a pet crow and I guess like a lot of people know that, but, um, I have a pet crow. Her name is penguin. (laughs) (laughs) I love all your animals names. Uh, Next, my next dog, I'm coming to you for a name. Yeah. I love naming animals. Yeah. You can be the Uh, name penguin. You're like the hat in Harry Potter. You're the one. Oh, you can be the. the you can hat. be the the dog namer. People go to you, yeah. and then you name the dog for them. I actually get a lot of messages for people asking me <laughs> to name their dogs. Yeah. <laughs> um, so my crow, she she obviously doesn't care if I get excited about mm. her doing a behavior. Like she does not care how I feel at all. Like she loves me. We're bonded, et cetera. But if I'm like, oh my goodness, you did the behavior. Wow, good. That's great. She doesn't care. Mm-hmm. But my dogs do. My dogs definitely feed off of my enthusiasm. In fact, my enthusiasm can kind of scare my crow. And so for her, 100% free shaping is where it's at because I, I don't have any cheater ways. Like maybe I can use you know, reward placement. But mm-hmm. even then, I'm not sure she's really connecting to that to the behavior. So for her, she has to 100% do the behavior, hear the mark, get the reward in the same place every single time. But for dogs, they don't <laughs> like they yeah. they really can thrive off of our enthusiasm. We can tell them when they jumped up in criteria or not, and they can learn that that's what they're supposed to be doing. And so we might as well take advantage of that, in my opinion. Yeah, mm-hmm. I agree very, very much. Yep. Hey, uh, we've taken up a lot of your time. Thanks so much for coming on the show. And so truth be told, our audience is probably more North America than it is Australia. So what else have you got coming up in America that you can plug? Oh, I probably should have looked at this before I came on here. (laughs) I have a seminar at the end of March in Connecticut. That will be there. I have kind of seminars all over the place, online things popping up all the time. Your best bet is to check out my website. Perfect. It's zoomdogtraining.com. And that has my current schedule and I do try to keep it as updated as possible. Otherwise, uh, follow me on Facebook. I post everything publicly so you're not missing out if you're not my friend. And so definitely follow me. Just my name, Sarah Bruski, and that's where most of my stuff pops up. Cool. Hey, thanks so much for coming on. Mm. I've really enjoyed talking to you. And, yeah, absolutely. And I've enjoyed following your stuff because like I say, I think that when you have chosen to restrict yourself to particular quadrants, you really had better be fucking good at them. And I noticed that you are. <laughs> so well, thank I really, you so much. my pleasure. I really do enjoy watching your training. And I think that so much of the way I like to do things really gels with the way you do. I, I'd love to catch one of your classes when you are in Australia. I definitely want to try and get to that. And you're our first positive reinforcement trainer that's come on the show. So really appreciate you and your time. We've had Ian Dunbar on the show. Well, <laughs> well. Well, I'm going to go ahead and say I'm the first and just roll with that. Yeah. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> don't, mm, don't I, I don't know there. if I like that one, but yeah. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much. It's really been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. And let me know when you're back in the States and I'd love to meet up as well. Yeah, cool. Sounds good. Well, you should come to the ISCP conference. Yeah, that would be cool. We'll be there in, um, we'll okay. both be there in September in, in um, Florida. In Florida. Mm. We'll see what else is going on in Florida, but yeah, I'll definitely try. Sounds good. All right. That's it for another episode of the Canine Paradigm. As always, if you like what you hear, please like, rate, share, subscribe. Do that through whatever subscription service you download us from. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Three bucks a month gets you access to an extra educational episode. And if you wanted to buy us a private jet to cruise around in, someone could do that too. That would be welcome. That'd be nice. Uh, and if you, another way you could support the show is to jump on a Teespring and buy some cool merch and look good while you rep the show. Uh, if you want to get in contact with us, the best way to do that is to post in our Facebook discussion group uh, because we currently have more than 300 emails that we haven't opened. So we're probably missing some people there. And I think that's it. That's it. Glenn, music. And now Sarah has to listen through this music. <laughs> ha ha!